When I looked at the Four Corners website, I found a really terrifying looking title, and then I realized it was mine. <laughs> and in truth, the title's accurate enough, but all the same, the talk is about something very simple. I think there is a need for a Christian theory of peacemaking, and I want your help to develop one. And Quite a few people here know me already, and you know that I actually wouldn't say something like that unless I meant it. The development of an interesting theory is not done like that. It comes from tossing ideas back and forward, assimilating ideas from various sources, from various kinds of uh, experience being brought to bear. And I think our need for a Christian theory of peacemaking needs to be answered by an effort that is not just mine, but that is widespread and serious. So I am very serious about saying, I hope that I am inviting you to take part in an enterprise that will go on and that will take us a lot further than any one person could do. Now, the phrase Christian theory has two words, and both of them matter. When I say theory, bear in mind that uh, universities have been my natural habitat for 45 years. What I mean by a theory is a set of ideas that live up to the standards that we expect in a university. Most obviously, they should have a coherent structure and they should be compatible with the knowledge that we have. And when I say Christian, I mean first and foremost, properly grounded in the Bible. Now, to me, it seems terribly important that those two should go together. There's a line that rings in my ears often and often, It's from Augustine, and he was talking about the attitude that Christians had to experts in his day, who, by the way, were very sophisticated about a lot of things, but uh, let's not go there. So Augustine wrote, It is shameful and damaging and greatly to be avoided that such a one should hear a Christian talk utter nonsense about their fields, claiming to speak in accordance with Christian writings. Now, I would be very happy if people remembered me as someone who took that to heart. I think Christian intellectuals have a duty to work out how specifically Christian ideas integrate with the knowledge that we continue to accumulate by the exercise of the powers that God has given us. And if you remember, that is what I am dumping on you. Please don't assume that that particular exoset is only directed at me. Okay, that's by way of of general background. Now let me go to peacemaking. And I'll start with my route into the area, and then I'll go to the Bible. My home discipline uh, is psychology. Uh, I started doing research on it in 1972, and I still do. My focus for the past few years has been emotion. 
But the tradition that I come from is probably not the one that most people here know best, uh, except for those who are my students, and I'm sure there are one or two here. It's almost inescapable. Have we escaped it? Amazing. They knew, they saw the name, and they didn't come, right? The tradition that I come from starts from the assumption that most of what people think and do can be understood pretty clearly if you understand the job it's set up to do. If you have misunderstood the job, and particularly if you've oversimplified the job, then of course you get confused. But if you try to understand the various aspects of our makeup as rather good ways of doing rather difficult things, then by and large uh, you can make a lot of headway. And that has been an approach that has gathered a lot of momentum in the study of emotion over the last 15, 20 years. Trying to understand what these mysterious processes do for us uh, and how effective they are. I was asked to apply that kind of thinking to a project called Compromise After Conflict at Queen's. Uh, if you haven't... Hello? Yeah. If, if you haven't uh, uh, looked at it, uh, Google the website Compromise After Conflict and there are lots of really good things there. I hope the reason why I was asked to get involved is fairly obvious. That emotions have a huge part in achieving the kind of compromise that actually leads to peace. If you ignore the emotions, it won't work. Now, when I looked at the literature as a psychologist, a few things jumped out at me, and I want to share them as briefly as I can, but you need to have some sort of sense of background, otherwise you can't answer the Augustine challenge. You do need to know what the background is. The first is that compromise has to reckon with emotion as well as reason. It's one thing to say that a deal is in everyone's interest, but if it makes people feel betrayed or humiliated, it probably won't hold. The second is that the emotions involved are not just glows or chills. This comes back to my point about understanding the, the jobs that parts of us do. The emotions have intimate links to your judgments about right and wrong. I know there's at least one philosopher uh, in the audience, and she will be thinking, David Hume, and so, so, so. The judgments about right and wrong that are grounded in emotion are incredibly difficult to shift. And unless you understand that, you are going to be trying to ask people things that their gut says is wrong. And that's a really different, difficult thing to ask. You must understand what you're asking. Last but not least, the emotional climate that you're working in affects people's ability to find solutions to the problems that create conflict. And I'll talk a bit more about that uh, very soon. Now, I mentioned emotional climate, and there is one feature of ours that it seems to me, as a psychologist, looms very large, and that is a pervasive sense of threat. 
A lot of background tells us what kind of effect that's likely to have, and we would expect those effects to obstruct the road to peace in a lot of ways. To start with, if people see the world as a place full of threats, they may respond with anger at one extreme or hopelessness at the other. We see plenty of those, uh, plenty of anger in public, uh, and uh, I'm sure a lot of us see plenty of hopelessness in private. It is a major issue in our city. What all those emotions uh, set you up to do is to deal with the threat and push everything else aside. That's what emotion does. Focus you on the immediate issue that some rather basic processes have identified. The way that you are set up starts from the very beginning. The way that you see things locks onto what you see as threatening and doesn't register other things that are going on. There's a legal name for this. They call it weapon focus. You remember the knife in the hand and you forget everything else around. Beyond that, fear drives you to avoid the thing that you're afraid of and so you never learn that it isn't as threatening as you thought. Beyond that again, memory directs your attention towards things that were frightening in the past and away from things that weren't. Whoops. It goes on and on. You don't take in the full meaning of what other people say to you if you're in an intense emotional state. Your thinking becomes inflexible. You refuse to consider options unless they're totally clear-cut, and you misjudge risks. If you're afraid, you overestimate the risks. If you're angry, you underestimate them. All of that is based on solid evidence and lots of it, and there is much more, but I need to move on. I hope that you have a sense that looking at the situation as a psychologist concerned with emotion, there's a whole list of issues that we would expect our society to be facing, and that appears to be what's happening. And therefore, we need to consider how we might think about dealing with it in our situation here in Northern Ireland. You can see the gist of it in posts that I put in a blog organized by Compromise After Conflict. But when I talked to friends, they wouldn't leave it there. They asked and kept on asking, how does this link to Christian teaching? And I gave them easy answers at first, but they wouldn't let go. That's one of the nice things about friends. They can harass you. So I started gradually into the territory that I want to talk about now. Let me begin with the easy bits. The Sermon on the Mount tells us that blessed are the peacemakers, And therefore, obviously, if we can make peace, we should. Along with that, the commandment that occurs most often in the Bible is, don't be afraid. And therefore, obviously, if we can combat fear, we should. Now, those had been in my mind from the beginning, 
But what my friends made me realize was that they were just a beginning. So let me try to take you deeper. I'll start by looking a bit more clearly at blessed are the peacemakers. Now, it's natural enough to think, oh, well, peacemaking is a worthy thing to do and it's well rewarded yet and move on. But on reflection, I don't think that captures it at all. If we look within the Beatitudes, there are three things to notice. The first is where it comes in the Beatitudes. It's almost at the end, a kind of climax. It's the end of the passage, which is short lines, okay? And then it moves into a rather different style. Second, that's underlined by the blessing that peacemakers receive. Their place in the kingdom is as members of the royal family, which is a towering honor. Third, the relationship is to be, the, the Greek says, huiai, not just children of the household, that would be tekna, but the sons whose nature is a true reflection of the fathers. And by the way, I'm sorry about the sexism, that's the ancient Greek language. The daughters also reflect the fathers and the mother's nature. That's another story. Now, it's a short step from there to remember that the Bible does, over and over, portray it as the nature of God to make peace. One of my favorites among the Psalms, Psalm 29, describes God in the fury of the storm. The Lord strips the cedars bare and breaks the trees of Terebinth, and in his temple all cry glory. Wow! But it ends, the Lord gives strength to his people, the Lord blesses his people with peace. Isaiah over and over put peace at the center of God's will for creation. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Paul, at his most poetic, writes to the Philippians, the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ our Lord. And of course, peace is at the center of Isaiah's promise of the Messiah who will reflect God fully. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Again, peace comes as a climax, the final seal. Now, looking at that and much more, I don't think the point in the Beatitudes is that God rewards peacemaking. I think it is that to be a bringer of peace, true peace, is to have the characteristics that reflect God's. I think that is why peacemakers are huiai, the children who reflect the Father's nature. And that points us straight to a new level. What are the characteristics that enable people to bring peace? 
Now, when I look at that question, I find myself looking through the lens of what I know as a psychologist, and I've tried to give you some background on that so that it doesn't come as an unfamiliar thing. And I come up short. I'm sure that you all know that the Beatitudes begin the Sermon on the Mount. And with that in mind, I read on through the sermon, and lo and behold, I realized that I was being pointed over and over again to the kind of person who might have the power to bring peace. It is as if Jesus told us in a phrase at the beginning of the sermon what the children of God will be like. They will be people who are by nature and reflecting God's nature bringers of peace. And then through the sermon he expands and lets us see them characteristic by characteristic. So let me follow through that idea. Let me begin this stage with something that I've raised already. I've talked about the way threat and the emotions that flow from it set obstacles to peace. I also mentioned that the commandment that occurs most often in the Bible is don't be afraid. Uh, you may have read that it uh, occurs 365 times. That's number magic, and whoever did it wouldn't be bothered actually sitting counting. It's more like 80 clear cases and 30 close approximations. However, the exact number is a side issue. Uh, academics are prone to these things. What matters is that those whose nature is a true reflection of the Father's will also say, don't be afraid. And the psychology makes it very clear that if we deal with fear, then we ease away a major tangle of obstacles to finding peace. Now let me reconnect with the Sermon on the Mount. When you look with these ideas in mind, you find that the theme of fear and counteracting fear plays a huge part in it. It comes to prominence in the last two-thirds. That's chapters 6 and 7. About half of the material in those chapters deals with fear and anxiety and what causes them and what banishes them. It pivots on the end of chapter 6. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Before that, in chapter 6, we have lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. So you needn't worry about it. Then come the lilies of the field. If God so clothe the grass of the field, shall he not all the more clothe you, O ye of little faith? After the pivot we have, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. And we have the man who built his house on rock and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not. I hope I don't need to elaborate. Jesus is spelling out one way after another to deal with fear. You don't need to fear 
because you can lay up treasure in heaven. You don't need to fear because the world is generous and the things you need will come to you. You don't need to fear because your prayers will be answered. You don't need to fear because when trouble comes, what matters to you will stand firm. People who have understood those messages are in a position to be peacemakers because they are not troubled in themselves and their assurance flows into the people that they meet. There is a thing called emotional contagion. Again, coming back to my, my background as a psychologist. Nothing calms as much as seeing that the person next to you is not afraid. And of course, it is even more powerful if you can share the understanding that lies behind your assurance so people can see why you're not afraid. There's another point that I'll make briefly at this stage because it links to fear. I had the pleasure of meeting George Mitchell at a dinner once. And he is surely a man worth looking at if we want to understand peacemaking. And what sticks most clearly in my mind is that even at dinner, he said nothing unnecessary or unconsidered. I was left in absolutely no doubt that what he said was what he meant. And suddenly it seemed obvious why he was an outstanding negotiator. You had the sense that what he said was to be trusted. It was neither frippery nor slippery. And you need not fear that you would be misled, either by design or by accident. And so I find it no surprise that in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a verse that always makes me think of Mitchell. Let your communication be yea, yea, or nay, nay. And we know from elsewhere that the elaborations that Jesus rejects along with there are full of tricks. If you want to be a peacemaker, keep away from tricks, clever words. Be like George Mitchell. Let your communication be yea, yea, or nay, nay. Now let me move to the next level. The first time I talked about this area as a psychologist, one of the points that I tried to highlight was that emotions morph into moral judgments. You see something and it shakes you. It's a very short step from there to the judgment that it was wrong. But once you've made that small step, your room for maneuver compresses immediately. It's not just hard to tolerate, you feel you mustn't tolerate it. And in the blink of an eye, your space for peacemaking has shrunk. And yet again, when I looked through that lens, I found the theme was waiting for me in the Sermon on the Mount. Like fear, it's a theme that comes back at various points and it gives us a subtle picture. At the center of the theme is a principle that seems to me psychologically very striking. Don't base your actions towards other people on moral judgments. In a church, I should probably repeat that. Don't base your actions towards other people on moral judgments. It is stated 
through and through and through the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous statement is, judge not that ye be not judged. And that has various levels of meaning, but for a peacemaker, there's a very simple one. Once you move into the domain of moral judgments, you can be fairly sure that your adversary will be able to find a moral counter-argument. And once you've made a moral argument, it's very hard to back off it, because nobody wants to make an agreement that violates what they have said are moral principles. Now, there's a very complicated, interesting secular literature behind those points. Part of it is to do with the fact that long efforts to track down an agreed basis for human moral judgments have failed. Principles that seem completely obvious to one person seem like nonsense to another. And that means that if a judgment is contentious, it is almost always possible to find some set of principles that imply it is right and some that imply it's wrong. That links to the way people move from the judgment that they don't like something to the judgment that it's wrong. A very plausible tradition says that they look for principles that line up behind their likes and dislikes. And the result is that when people have different gut reactions to something that matters to them, it's very likely that the gut reactions will have pushed them to strengthen different moral principles. And once people are pushed into positions when they're arguing from different moral principles, finding a resolution becomes monstrously difficult. Another body of literature tells us that the minute people state a position explicitly in public, the chances that they will change it plummet. So absolutely for a peacemaker, there are abundant reasons to remember, judge not that ye be not judged. There's a lot more to say on this, but I'll make two more points and move on. The first is it isn't just moral judgments that are a problem. Jesus says, whoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of Gehenna. That links quite tightly to the argument I've just given. Particularly when there are moral judgments at stake, it is deadly if you think that the only reason why someone might disagree with you is that they're stupid. The word in Matthew is more, which means a dull lump. That's what we get more on from. If you want peace, don't go there. Credit your your opponent with intelligence or you are lost. To close this part, there's a shift of level that it's important to see. I've said that there are negative consequences if you let judgment govern your action. But that doesn't mean your motive should be trying to avoid bad consequences. That would be another way of letting fear dictate your choices. So it is no surprise that Jesus gave another motive. He tells his listeners, that's not the way God sees it. Back to the theme. Be like God. Your father makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. That gives you a very different motive. Be like God. Be as perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And you will not discriminate. 
That links back to, I've said over and over, that to be a bringer of peace, true peace, is to have characteristics that reflect God's. So, if you want peace, be like God, and don't base your actions towards people on moral judgments. The next step in the argument follows on very naturally. If you don't base your actions towards other people on moral judgments, what do you base them on? And I think there are two parts to the answer. The first answer is to think symmetrically. See that what goes for you goes for the other party. Now, Jesus is very, very good with arguments involving symmetry. And two of the most famous, of course, come in the Sermon on the Mount. One is, take the plank out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's. And the other is, do unto others as you would that others would do to you. Now, of course, symmetry as a principle for peace is one that we know very well. For every benefit that one side gets, the other side must have an equal benefit. For every pain that one side suffers, the other must suffer an equal pain, and so on. In fact, you could say it's been the founding principle of our peace since the Good Friday Agreement. And looking round... There is no shortage of unease that somehow peace by symmetry hasn't worked out. And as usual, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you shouldn't find that too much of a surprise. I've said that Jesus is very good with arguments involving symmetry, but that includes seeing very clearly where they go wrong. Think of the vineyard where the workers are hired at different times and get the same generous pay at the end of the day. The desire for symmetry becomes poisonous. The ones who are hired first are soured because it isn't equal pay per hour. Think of the prodigal son. Again, the desire for symmetry becomes poisonous. The elder son is soured because of an unequal celebration. Jesus knows very well that simple symmetry can bring division every bit as much as peace. What would you expect from symmetry? It is symmetrical. What Jesus points to in the Sermon on the Mount is more than simple symmetry. He asks people to offer their part of a good symmetry. You know how you would like people to behave to you, then act that way and trust that by symmetry they will be drawn into acting that way too. You want your brother to see clearly, then do what is necessary to correct your own sight and trust that by symmetry he will be drawn to let his sight be dealt with. In that way, there's a chance of using symmetry as a tool for peace instead of becoming a source of poison. If symmetry is one principle that Jesus takes and turns in a distinctive way, much the same can be said of another. It's empathy. Steve talked earlier about humanizing, rehumanizing. Empathy is emotional identification with a person. 
Not just knowing intellectually that they're like you, but feeling their happiness as your happiness, their distress as your distress. And that brings me to the second part of the question I asked earlier. If you don't base your actions towards other people on moral judgments, what do you base them on? Empathy has, occurred, has emerged as a major theme in research over the last few decades, not just in one discipline, but in several. The historian Jonathan Glover uh, argued in a wonderful book called Humanity that failure of empathy was what allowed the atrocities of the 20th century. On the other side, it's been clear that empathy is the key to altruism. That is, doing things because they benefit other people, not for your own good. Altruistic behavior is strongly linked to empathy with the one to whom you uh, behave in that way. Recently, Simon Baron Cohen, uh, who is Sasha's cousin, but uh, not nearly as funny, uh, has argued that the hallmark of people we call evil is zero empathy. And I could go on, but you get the point. There is every reason to think that the ability to emphasize, to, to empathize, is central to peacemaking. Quite characteristically, Jesus saw the point and took it a step further. He tells us not just to feel our enemy's happiness as our own and their pain as our own, but to love them. I know that when I put it that way, I'm raising issues. Some of the things that we call love don't involve empathy. But the word Jesus uses here is agape, and that carries with it a sense of sharing and positive evaluation. It's not mindless passion. It blends judgment and warmth and interaction. It means see your enemy as someone you would be glad to welcome as a dinner guest, one of your own. Remember, I'm a psychologist who works on emotion. It seems to me that that is a very acute judgment. Making peace is not just about an intellectual sense of symmetry with the person on the other side, or even with the emotional sym symmetry of empathy. It is about engaging with the person on the other side as someone you would welcome as a guest, one of your own. There are still themes that I would like to follow up, but time is finite. But there is one theme that I have to touch before I try to put things together. It goes back close to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says there, just after the Beatitudes, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I don't pretend it's obvious what he means, but I know what I think. I think it means we can't hide. If we are like our Father, who is perfect, then we will be seen, and we will be drawn into the work of making peace. It's not a choice. God's nature is to make peace, and if we share his nature, we will be drawn into the work of making peace. Now, let me come back to the place where I started. 
I said I thought there was a need for a Christian theory of peacemaking and I wanted your help to develop one. So let me sketch for you what my approximation at the moment looks like. Because that is what I have been outlining as I went through. I've said that as I see it for a Christian, being a peacemaker is not a worthy action. It is a consequence of reflecting the Father's nature. To be that kind of person is to have overcome the sense of threat, which is a fundamental enemy to peace, and to be able to help others to move past it. It is to speak plainly and clearly so that you can be trusted. It is to understand how dangerous it is to judge people you disagree with morally or intellectually. It is to be capable of thinking symmetrically so that you always see that what goes for you goes similarly for the other party. But beyond that, it includes seeing that not all symmetry will work for peace. The symmetry that works for peace is to act your part in the balance that should exist and trust that others will be drawn into acting the way you do. Beyond that, Making peace depends not only on symmetry grasped as an intellectual principle, but also on emotion. At the first level, that means empathy, feeling our enemy's happiness as our own and their pain as our own. But in Christian peacemaking, it means more. It means seeing your enemy as someone whose virtues are dear to you and who you would be glad to welcome as a dinner guest. Last but not least, these things are not choices. If you reflect the Father's nature, then you reflect it openly. I said, if you remember, that I thought there was need for a Christian theory of peacemaking and that I wanted your help to develop one. I think that what I've said is the beginning of a theory. It's something that we can say without embarrassment to the community at large. Look, this is what we as Christians can offer to the long project of bringing peace, not just to Northern Ireland, but to humanity. It is not fanciful. It fits with what we know from many sources. However, it's just a start. The theme that I have left out of the sermon is merciless self-criticism. I have no doubt at all that that is also central to peacemaking. And so I end with Jesus at his least conciliatory. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Our intellectual theories, our theories are the intellectual eyes through which we see the world. And if our theories are flawed, we should set about them with a will. And I very seriously ask you, set about this intellectual eye that I have offered you with a will. And if it offends you, pluck it out. But find another. I absolutely think that that should apply to what I've said here. Developing a theory of peace that is both Christian and credible is far too important to leave any room for complacency. And that is why I said, I want your help to develop one. 
So please take what I've said, pull it to bits, see what's wrong, what's missing. But don't stop there. Put it together again and make it work. Because if nothing else, I'm very sure of this. Jesus was absolutely serious when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. If we care about his blessing, we must care about peace.